My name is Jeremy Devins and welcome to the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast. And today's episode is about the seven most helpful things I've learned about anatomy as it pertains to my yoga practice and teaching yoga. So if you want to keep in touch with me, check out quietmind.yoga slash confidence where you can sign up for my upcoming free workshop. There's a waiting list right now, but if you listen to this later, you might see the actual link to sign up for the workshop where I'll be teaching the three mindset shifts that I've learned to help me build confidence in my practice and in my teaching. And this is a sort of preview and overview of the yoga teacher training that I offer, which is an in-depth training certification and mentorship program that goes into everything about anatomy, alignment, history of yoga, all of it's there, the eight limbs, the chakras, pranayama meditation, it's very thorough, and if you want to get into that, uh, the best way to check it out and learn more about it is to join this free workshop. It's the three mindset shifts to build confidence in teaching yoga at quietmind.yoga confidence. So today's episode, I'm going to share basically what I've learned through my own self-study, self-practice. It took me about eight years into my own practice to really start to get this stuff. And I had great teachers and great support, and I've been in many great trainings, but the anatomy stuff just never quite stuck. And I've talked to a lot of people who feel the same way. It's just, I just want to learn more anatomy. So the one thing I feel like the weakest in my yoga teaching or practice. So I explored a lot of different things, and I found some great teachers, but I realized the best teachers and most helpful things that I learned were actually outside of yoga, and we'll get into that. But... I'm just going to jump right into what are these seven things. So starting with the first one is the five movements of the spine. So if you've done a yoga teacher training, you know this one already. It's included in most trainings. Hopefully it's been in yours as well. But the spine can only move in five different ways. So in every single yoga posture, you're doing one of these five movements. And the five movements are flexion, where you're rounding the back. Like when we're sitting a lot, uh, working at a desk, this is common. And you see people who have issues with this where their spine is in what's called a uh, kyphosis. It's too much of the spinal flexion. Their back's rounding a lot and frequently. And then the opposite of that is a spinal extension. So there's flexion and extension. Extension is when like heart openers are lifting your center of your chest up. Like bridge pose, locust pose, cobra, wheel, any sort of back bend, that's a spinal extension. And then to give you examples of the flexion, that's like any sort of forward fold, like Paschimottanasana or standing forward fold at the front of the mat or anything like that. And then, another, so there's spinal flexion and extension. That's basically just moving forward, flexion, and extension is lifting the spine and moving slightly backwards. And then there's the rotation of the spine or twists. So you can only rotate left or right. And in yoga parlance, that's pretty much always just a twist. So you twist to your right. And there's many different variations of that seated or lunging, standing, but it's pretty much just always described as a twist. Uh, but I'll usually say rotate your spine to the right. And rotation is a lot easier from extension of the spine. So when you understand that, you understand the limitations of rotation a lot better. So if you have a hard time twisting when you're like seated, maybe you have a little bit of that kyphotic curve, your back's rounding more from sitting a lot, and the twists are going to be a lot harder there than they would be in, say, a low lunge like Anjane Asana, where you've already begun a little bit more of a spinal extension, 
and then getting the rotation, especially an open twist, would be a lot easier there. And the next movement of the spine is lateral flexion or side bends. And this is like banana pose, which you might know and love. You're laying on your back and you just look like a banana into a side bend or just standing up in a side bend or in a lunge, you could do a side bend variation. So that's the lateral flexion, lateral moving side to side, flexion sort of folding, right? Usually in general, flexion means forward fold. It's a good way to remember the F there, but lateral flexion is like a side fold. And then the last movement of the spine is axial extension. And this is essentially like decompressing the spine, which we do in downward facing dog. And uh, that's really the main way we do it in yoga. Or if you've ever been like on an inversion table, the spine's decompressed. So that's the five movements. Flexion, folding forward, extension, lifting the heart, uh, the twist, the rotation of the spine, the lateral flexion side to side, and then the axial extension, the lengthening of the spine. Knowing this, these five movements of the spine, you can look at any posture and then see, okay, which spinal movement is going to be optimal in this position. For example, if you're in warrior two, uh, there's generally just a little bit of spinal extension there. If you move into spinal flexion, uh, that's going to be tucking the pelvis in. It's going to be pulling on your adductors and your front leg and maybe your back leg. It's just uh, not very helpful there. So a little bit of spinal extension in warrior two. And just think of uh, like warrior three, the balancing pose. Would you want to have the spine in more flexion rounding or more extension, right? In general, it's gonna be more extension. It's gonna be similar to locust pose where you're lifting your heart and strengthening the spinal stabilizing muscles and the erector spinae in the back and the glutes and the hamstrings, the back leg. So that's all extending the spine similar to locust or even like bow pose to some degree. Then think of um, like a lunging twist, right? So obviously what movement of the spine is that? It's a rotation. So you're gonna to want to avoid any extra flexion there. So starting from a little bit of extension might give you some more room to twist and might make your twist feel a little more spacious and a little less compressive on the internal organs, especially if you just ate, which is something I did today in my, or yesterday in my practice when I decided to eat before practice, never a good idea. So one last time, because repetition is the mother of skill, is uh, repeat the five movements of the spine or flexion, extension, rotation, lateral flexion, and axial extension. And you wanna notice which one is the intended movement of the posture, which one is gonna be optimal in that posture. But how do you know? Like why would it be optimal to do one thing and not another in a posture for going for a certain effect? Well, this brings us to our second thing. The second most helpful thing that I've learned about anatomy over the years is that every anatomic cue comes from understanding anatomic neutral. So anatomic neutral, if you haven't seen this before, you can just look it up on Google, anatomic neutral. This is like basically mountain pose or shavasana. So in some ways, if you practice this way, you might start in mountain pose and end in shavasana. So you're starting in anatomic neutral and then ending in anatomic neutral. And every alignment or anatomy cue can come from that understanding of neutral. So neutral is 
just standing up like mountains. So your arms are just slightly externally rotated, so your palms turn a little bit forward. Your shoulders are not elevated or shrugging, they're just relaxed. You're not turning your head any particular way, you're just looking straight on, right? So everything is about as neutral as you can get. And from there, you can have all sorts of movements. And this brings us to our third thing. The third most helpful thing I've learned about anatomy is that every muscle in the body can only do two things. And technically there's a third one, but I'll just say for now two things. That's either, maybe you can guess what a muscle can do, right? When yoga, we typically think of the muscles as lengthening and stretching, getting longer, lengthening the distance between the joints. And then the other thing the muscle can do is Maybe you can guess is the opposite of that is shortening, contracting. This is what we do when we build strength. And then the third thing that's technically a third thing is isometric contraction, which is where you hold so somewhere in the middle. So you're lengthening and holding a contraction. Uh, it's not fully lengthening. It's not fully contracted, but it's somewhere in the middle and you're holding that tension in the muscle. Uh, but that in some ways can build uh, just mind-muscle connection and uh, body awareness. And these are other important things to develop. It's for another time to talk about those. Uh, but in general, so you know, a muscle in the body can either be lengthening or shortening. So for example, an easy one that most of us can imagine is the biceps muscle on the arm. So when you do a sort of bicep curl, like you bring your, say, your left hand goes from being beside you at your thigh to bending your elbow and moving your left hand to your shoulder. So that's a bicep curl kind of movement and it shortens the biceps. And then when you move your hand from your shoulder back down to your left thigh, now it's lengthening, right? So your biceps can lengthen or shorten. On the other side of your arm, the triceps are doing the opposite. So when the biceps shorten, the muscles opposite to it, the triceps lengthen and vice versa. All right, so understanding this sort of relationship that's hap happening in the body is really helpful for understanding what's happening in a posture. So to bring it into more uh, sort of concrete example, again, warrior three, imagining warrior three with your right, right leg is forward, you're balancing on the right leg. Left leg is reaching up and back, spine is lengthening forward and up. So you're in the spinal extension again and the back leg is lifting. So that means the left hip flexors have to be lengthening because the hip flexors are at the front of the body or really the center of the body. And they're what essentially bring your belly towards your thighs. So the left leg, your belly and your thighs are moving away from each other. So then you know the psoas on the left side is lengthening. The opposite is happening on the right leg where the right thigh is moving closer to the belly. So the right psoas is shortening and contracting to some degree. Not huge, but it is happening there. And then what's happening on the back of the body, right? So the, the glutes have to contract on the left leg and uh, the left hamstrings might contract a little bit the way I teach it at least. You have a slight bend in your knee, so you get the whole posterior chain of your body activating more. And the muscles along the back, like the erector spinae, all the muscles of the, the spine that support the spine in the back are contracting here, the rhomboids, Again, this more the way I teach it is like your shoulders slightly retract together and down to engage the lower trapezius muscles on the back. So all the muscles on the back of the body on the left side and the back are contracting so that all the muscles on the front 
of the left leg are lengthening, like the quadriceps, the hip flexors on the left side, the abdominal muscles, and uh, the chest and shoulders as well. And then the right side is a little different, right? So the right side, the hamstrings are lengthening uh, because the front of the body is shortening and the quadriceps on the right leg are contracting and the hamstrings are lengthening, right? So there's this relationship throughout the whole body where a muscle can either be contracting or lengthening and there's something called reciprocal inhibition that says if one side is shortening, the opposite side is lengthening. And there are ways that you can sort of do the isometric contractions and activate both sides to some degree, uh, but at their fullest extent. So when your bicep is fully contracted, then the ham then the, uh, the triceps have to be lengthening to some degree for that to happen because of the sort of system, the way the body is uh, interacting and, and sort of all these muscles are moving the joints and moving the limbs and one side has to lengthen and one side has to shorten to do that. So that's the third most helpful thing I've learned about anatomy, that every muscle in the body can do two things, either shorten or lengthen. And then when you're in any posture, you can look at any muscle and think, is this muscle shortening or lengthening here? And if I emphasize that effect a little bit more, maybe that will bring me closer to the alignment of the posture that I'm looking for, where I feel really well aligned in the posture, really find a perfect balance of stira and sukha, where some things are really stable and contracting and some things are really soft and light. And it's like this perfect harmony of the two. Next, adding on to that is to think about all of the areas of the body three-dimensionally. So front, back, and sides. So for example, if I take requests, which I do at the beginning of all my classes, and somebody says, uh, I wanna work on hip flexor tension, since I'm talking about that, I know that's going to be addressing that sort of movement of bringing, for example, your left knee in closer to the belly versus extending the left leg out like you do in Locust or Warrior Three. So that's the hip flexor. That's what it does, right? It shortens that distance between the thigh and the belly, and it can lengthen that distance. But at the same time, again, thinking, knowing that muscles can do two things and there's this relationship front and back, this reciprocal inhibition, I'm thinking at least front, now I'm gonna to look to the back. So that's the glutes. And the glutes are also considered hip extensors. So that means when the glutes are contracting, the hips are extending, right? So hip flexors are going to flexion, they forward fold the front of the waist. And hip extensors extend the front of the waist. And that's what the glutes do. So right away, somebody just requested to work on their hip flexors we're also gonna work on the glutes. So front and back. And then the sides, like the glute medius, is the sort of outer glute muscle, has a big part in this too. It's very common that if, for example, the hip flexors are tight, maybe the glute medius is weak, or maybe the adductors are tense, right? So now I'm thinking three-dimensionally, so I've just addressed the front and back, but now let's look to the sides, left and right, of the adductors, the inner legs, and the abductors, the outer legs. So that means doing stuff like maybe some version of bound angle pose, with the knees apart, some version of pigeon pose, maybe, and this is uh, sort of an extra little thing I'll talk about probably more in a future episode, but my approach when I'm thinking three-dimensionally is I want to relieve the tension that's already there, right? So say they come in and they've been working for 
eight hours and they've got this job where they're working all the time, like 40 hour a week and repetitive stress at the job. And that's why they're coming to yoga to relieve that stress. Uh, I'm not going to start right away. Like, all right, well, let's go from sitting at a desk all day to a super deep stretch. It's just not going to be helpful. And they're going to feel tight and maybe discouraged. And I'm also not going to say, well, let's go into some really challenging strengthening stuff and build some strength in that area because it's weak. And another topic for another time is tight muscles are often also weak muscles. Not tight doesn't mean needs to be stretched. Tight often means weak, needs to be strengthened. But before we can do that, before we can do any stretching or any strengthening, my approach that I found most helpful based on my anatomy research, my own practice and teaching is relieve the tension that's already there first. And this means like therapeutic techniques could be uh, using therapy balls, foam rollers, different sort of uh, palpitation techniques with the fingers to massage, like self-massage and work out these knots in the hip flexors or the glutes or wherever it might be, in the shoulder, or the upper back. There's a lot of these common ones in the neck. Uh, so whatever the request is, I'm going to think three-dimensionally, front, back, and sides, and I'm going to work on helping them release the tension that's already there when they're starting. Then some mind-muscle connection, which often means activating the muscles, so some sort of contracting of contracting and releasing the muscle. Then after we've done some, then build up to more active stuff and then get very like more into the contraction side of things, then the muscles are much more likely to respond well to stretching and lengthening. And this is something I learned as I've shared before in classes is I had a shoulder tension for several months. It kind of come back and go away and I'd stretch it out and it'd come back. So I realized that just stretching was not working and I needed to do something more. So I realized that my muscles were not tight because they needed to be stretched. They were tight because they were weak and needed to be strengthened. And that contraction and repeated contraction and releasing and even adding strength and load onto the upper traps in my case, like shoulder shrugs and to the point of fatigue, then the muscle just gets contracting, 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 and then it just can't contract anymore like a fatigued and worked out the muscle to its limit. Now it's like, yes, stretching would feel amazing. Please like move and stretch. Uh, so that's the approach that I found worked really well and eliminated my shoulder issues, eliminated hamstring issues I had, eliminated low back pain stuff I had. So think three-dimensionally about all areas of your body. If you have a tension, for example, in your chest, Think also the rhomboids, the lower traps, the opposite of the chest, but think also in the sides of the serratus anterior, right? So the whole three dimensions of the body. If you have, want to strengthen your core, it's not just crunches. It's also the transverse abdominals, the deeper muscles. It's also the obliques, the sides of the core, and it's also the low back and strengthening the lower, middle, and upper back, right? So three-dimensional thinking of working with all areas of the body and with the hips. It's not just the front of the hips or the back, it's the inner and outer hips as well. And generally, when I'm teaching a class, I'm going to include some of all of this, whether people request it or not. But if there's a request around one of those areas, we're going to focus a little bit more on that area. And again, that technique is relieve the tension that's already there, then build mind-muscle connection through activation techniques, like contracting and releasing that muscle. 
Then after you've got the mind-muscle connection, do more focus contracting active work. This is like the middle of a class where you're flowing through postures, doing very active, engaged stuff. Then finally, the deeper stretches towards the end once the body is sort of warmed up and you've got that mind-muscle connection to really feel the muscle and really be precise of this is the muscle I'm working with. I'm stretching my glute medius here. I'm stretching my piriformis muscle or it's the hamstrings or whatever. So it's not just, I'm just stretching it out and it feels great because it's yoga. That's what I did for a while and it doesn't work in the long run. And this is why people sometimes get discouraged and think, well, I did yoga, but it wasn't helping and I stopped. And I've talked to people who get discouraged and sort of disillusioned with yoga because stretching is not the answer to all of what ails you. And really it's a understanding the body more holistically, more three-dimensionally, and knowing that muscles can do two things, contract and lengthen, and they need to do both to be optimally functional and to feel great in your body. The next most helpful thing that I've learned about anatomy is the six movements of the scapula. And I'm going to say this kind of quickly. Uh, so it's elevation, shrugging, depression, unshrugging, uh, protraction, moving the shoulders apart, retraction, moving the shoulders together. Upward rotation, raising your arms overhead like a Y or a V shape. And downward rotation, it's the opposite of that. It's moving your arms back down beside you. So again, elevation and depression, shrugging and unshrugging the shoulders. Protraction and retraction, moving apart and together. And upward rotation and downward rotation. In yoga, we do a ton of upward rotation. So we want to understand that movement really well. And we do, and there tends to be a common misalignment of a lot of shoulder elevation. So we want to understand that as well. So when I'm teaching classes, this means I might say, unshrug your shoulders. Or shrug and lower your shoulders a few times to feel this muscle, this upper traps. And just notice, build mind-muscle connection to it. And let's shrug it up and hold that tension for a little bit. And then just let it go. So you can practice holding it, feeling it, and then being able to let it go. Because often it just becomes unconscious that it's just tensing up and holding there from working at a desk or whatever stress is going on, driving in traffic. Maybe people have a long commute and they hold the wheel at 10 and 2 and they build up this tension in their upper shoulders and it just gets stuck over time and people get things like frozen shoulders, adding stress, emotional and energetic components to that as well. So in general, driving uh, instead with the hands at 10 and two, doing the opposite so your palms are facing up towards the bottom of the wheel, that gives your arms external rotation, which is another topic for another time. Uh, but that is an important one to know is external rotation. And that's definitely one of the most helpful things I've learned about the shoulders. But these six movements, really, you'll kind of naturally, especially with the upward rotation, when you understand when your arms raise up overhead, you want your pinkies to turn slightly towards each other because that's external rotation in the shoulders. Uh, so you've got that covered right there. So real common, really common in classes and so many postures that the shoulders elevate when they don't need to. And maybe it's a movement pattern or mind-muscle connection is not quite there or repetitive stress or whatever. So teaching your students and teaching yourself mind-muscle connection in these six movements is super helpful. And you could just sit down, hands and knees, or sit on sit in cross-legged, sukhasana, and just practice elevation, depression, lift and lower. 
Protraction, retraction, apart and together. Upward rotation and downward rotation. Lifting up overhead and lowering back down. And those six movements show up in tons of poses, as you can imagine, especially like the high lunges, the anjaneyasana, the low lunges, anything with your arms overhead, like tree pose, right? You don't want your arms, and so this is anatomically, you can have your hands together. This is like an Ashtanga yoga. There's a lot of hands together overhead. You can do that, and it's much more anatomically sort of uh, sustainable and uh, optimal. If you do that, if your hands are going to be together, you really press your pinkies towards each other and work on this mind-muscle connection to be able to not just elevate your shoulders right away and keep them there. So you're able to depress your shoulders a little bit, uh, but more optimal, more anatomic, uh, anatomically sound from what I understand in my own body and working with students is arms more like a Y or a V overhead rather than palms together. And you can just try it yourself, see how it feels. But there's a, a shoulder movement called scaption, which is sort of the optimal sort of line of movement for the shoulders. And upward rotation is essentially that, where you're lifting up overhead in sort of a Y shape or a V shape, rather than straight up like a letter, like a capital, or like a letter I, uh, like straight up pillar kind of shape. So in general, whenever the arms go overhead with yoga, uh, that sort of Y or V shape is optional, optimal with the pinkies turning slightly towards each other, palms turning slightly up towards the ceiling. That's the external rotation of the shoulders. In general, more often than not, teaching retraction and depression of the shoulder blades is optimal in yoga to balance out the forward fold flexion, sitting at a desk stuff that builds up. And that's going to, when you do the retraction and depression, that's going to strengthen the lower traps and help relax the upper traps. The next most helpful thing, number six, that I've learned about anatomy is that joints are responsible for 47% of flexibility and muscles and fascia and connective tissue are 41%. So the joints are really important to yoga and often overlooked and this huge emphasis on muscles. So... This is where uh, sort of hereditary differences are a huge factor. Say you're born just with your femurs naturally internally or externally rotated, or you're born uh, with a limited range of motion in certain joints, right? And that's where you don't need to push. And if you're a teacher, don't push your students. You don't understand. You can't just look at somebody and know right away their range of motion in their joints. If you work with them for a while, you will, you'll start to see it. But assume right away that it le it's less and that you're not going to try to force it or push it. Assume for yourself that it's less. And if you increase your flexibility over time, great. Uh, but this is why I also encourage starting with some simple joint movements in classes. And I often do this, especially if we're going to work with some kind of complex movements. So starting with just maybe on the, laying on your left side and just moving your right hip around in circles and movements. So you're moving the synovial fluid in the joints. So understanding the joints and how they optimally function, it's really helpful here. So the joints are well lubricated. You've got some mind-muscle connection to moving the joints and the range of motion. You understand that the, the uh, hip joint and the shoulder joint are ball and socket. So they've got a pretty wide range you can work with, but the elbows and knees are hinge joints. So they mainly just move forward and back. And if you add 
rotation on that they've got a small small window that they can rotate so that's why you know in general like in warrior two you don't want the front knee bowing in towards the center of the mat you want the the front knee moving straight ahead towards the front toes so you're getting that hinge joint to just hinge and not adding rotation onto the hinge joint of the knee right so understanding the joints in this way and moving them in throughout the class like a side angle pose is where i often have people move their shoulder in any way that feels good just to get that movement and lubrication of the shoulder joint. And then we'll do some more challenging shoulder stuff like side plank or binds with the arms, uh, things like that. So starting first with joint mobility, mobilizing the joints because they're responsible for more than half of our flexibility, then the muscles and fascia are 41%. So this was a huge understanding for me. And especially when it's colder, if you're teaching in colder climates, getting the joints moving, moving and keeping the temperature in the room warm around 70 to 76 degrees, depending on what you like, or more if you'd like. Uh, it's going to keep the joints warm and moving. I learned this because I grew up in Minnesota and played in bands, and we'd, have, uh, we'd play in garages, and uh, there were days where I literally couldn't play guitar because my joints completely locked up. I was amazed that was even possible, but it is in the cold weather. So I always make sure, especially in the cold weather, the class is at least uh, in the mid-70s to keep the joints warm and moving and uh, transition out of the cold. And finally, the seventh most helpful thing that I've learned about anatomy, and there's probably plenty more to come in the future, uh, and as you heard, there's a lot more weaved in here, but it's to learn anatomy from physical therapists, certified personal trainers, doctors, kinesiologists, and other anatomy specialists outside of yoga. So this is where I've learned the most myself, is working with physical therapists, uh, actually doing my own certified personal trainer's uh, certification, learned a ton there, working with a doctor, an MD, uh, that I'm fortunate I get to do private sessions with him and uh, sort of test my knowledge and skills with him and get things validated or uh, shot down if I'm off the mark. Uh, so these sort of outside of yoga or yoga adjacent fields are very helpful for really learning how the body functions and what is optimal alignment and what are the movements of the limbs and the muscles and the fascia and how does it all work. These people are really focusing, focusing their careers and their lives on studying these things so they'll have a much more in-depth perspective than typical yoga teacher and that was a mistake I made for a while just going to yoga teachers and going to yoga classes hoping that maybe I'll pick up on this anatomy thing maybe I need to go to more classes I'm not I'm just not quite getting it uh, but I would go to more classes and there's so much great stuff in yoga classes but learning anatomy like studying anatomy is just not something that typically happens in a yoga class but there are teachers who do it more so now, and I infuse a little bit in my classes, but still, like, uh, you know, I'm not there to just teach you about uh, the nuances of shoulder movement. We're there to move our bodies and connect with the breath and have the whole yoga class experience. So uh, you're just not going to learn anatomy at that depth just in the typical yoga class. So that's where I uh, looked outside the box, and I'm super grateful I did. And uh, I'll keep sharing things that I've learned here and in my classes and in my trainings. Uh, but I encourage you to look outside the box and explore these other things. And not even just like yoga anatomy books. Like I, I looked at every one of them. I had most of them and I've 
uh, sold most of them. Like I said, I find ultimately what's most helpful is this this other approach for me. It's what I found most helpful. Uh, so maybe you'd want to explore that as well. But I've also included everything that I've learned and the best of everything I've learned in my own yoga teacher training at quietmind.yoga. So you can check that out if you are interested in learning with me and me sharing everything I've learned from these PTs and CPTs and doctors and MDs. So that's all included in my training that I offer. But I encourage you to look outside the box and find even on YouTube, there's so many great PTs on YouTube now teaching about anatomy. And there are even some great yoga anatomy lessons on there. Uh, but in general, stick with like the PTs and the physical therapists, the people who are focused on optimal function of the human body and helping people recover and uh, basically rehabilitate their bodies. So they're going to know this stuff even better than the average yoga teacher. So those are my seven most helpful things I've learned about anatomy. And if you have things that you've learned that you found helpful, I'd love to hear. You can send me a message on Instagram at jeremy.quietmind. Uh, you can leave a review of this show if you think it's helpful. If you're enjoying the show, leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. And again, my upcoming workshop online, The Three Mindset Shifts to Build Confidence in Teaching Yoga, will be at quietmind.yoga slash confidence. And you can check that out and learn about the mindset shifts that I found most helpful for teaching yoga and applying it to my own practice. And you'll learn about my yoga teacher training that's coming up. It's limited to just eight students and there's already five signed up as the time of my recording. Uh, it's all online and self-paced, but we do have weekly sessions that you participate in and lots of one-on-one -on -one mentorship. That's why it's a small limited group. So you can check that out and you'll hear about that through the workshop. All right. So thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a review, and I look forward to sharing more with you soon.